Hey everyone, just a quick message before we get started. WWDC 2016 is right around the corner, and of course this is like Christmas for those of us doing iOS development. If you're not attending WWDC this year, we at ThoughtBot would love to have you come watch it with us, at least a bit of it. We're hosting keynote watching parties on June 13th at our offices in Stockholm, London, Boston, New York City, and Austin. And on the morning of June 14th, we'll be hosting our traditional WWDC breakfast at our office in San Francisco. You'll find information about all these events at thoughtbot.com slash WWDC, along with sign-up links. Some of these events are probably going to fill up, so don't wait. We hope to see you there. Once again, that's thoughtbot.com slash WWDC. Well, let's do this. Awesome. Showtime. Yep. So 45 minutes of setting up a microphone. <laughs> Par for the we'll course. Five minutes. Hey everybody, this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Jack in Stockholm. And this is Build Phase. Can I just tell you how great these this Magic Keyboard and new Magic Trackpad are? Sure. Because I, I had to go, I, I went looking for a new keyboard and I realized, wait, you can wire these things now, which means that you can use them with any computer despite them being paired with my main iMac. Oh. Game changer. Can you imagine? So they just have like a normal iPhone 5 style lightning cable or whatever it's called yeah exactly they're just lightning to usb and you can keep them plugged in i actually i usually do at my desk because i've noticed that with the trackpad there seems to be occasional input lag mm -hmm. and i don't know if that's just coming from bluetooth interference but as soon as you plug it in that goes away completely in fact i think it even turns off the bluetooth radios when you do that nice fantastic yeah i've never really been a big fan of wireless keyboards and mice in general like i have i have magic trackpad an older one and it works, but just like I've never really seen the appeal. Like it seems like it's always people are always complaining about their batteries running out, and like you know, there's it's all it's a constant stream of people in every office I've worked in in the past five or ten years. Someone's already always got oh, do we have newer batteries for this thing? Where is the thing that I lose the? Why doesn't this work? Oh, it's talking to your computer. Just like all these like, and I don't see what the big gain is because I'm sitting at my desk. Those cables are not hard to plug in. Yep. Yep. I don't know. Remember, I was um, 14. So it was about the year 2000. And it was when these, it was when wireless keyboards and mice, you know, really started picking up steam. Hmm. And I had saved a bunch of money to build my own PC. Mm -hmm. And up until that point, the only keyboard I had in the house was wireless. And so the first time I put it all together and I tried to, you know, go into the BIOS. I quickly realized that I had a serious problem and had to wait an entire week to, you know, have someone drive me to Fry's to be right. able to pick up a wired keyboard just to make this like very expensive PC work. That was sure. defeating. <laughs> so I, I think I've like the PTSD of that has lingered and I'm always like wary of wireless things. Right. Although, you know, Macs are pretty good about, you can just use them with wireless things right out of the box, but. Right. Yeah, but still, even so, often seems unnecessary to me. And I guess one thing that always bugs me, like sometimes I I see these little devices in stores that are like a combo little keyboard and trackpad, and I think, oh, that could be cool to have like in, like say, in the living room if I know that I'm going to be using stuff that's streaming from my Mac to the TV. But I don't actually want to have my Mac on the couch. I'd rather just be able to put it down somewhere and have a smaller thing to be able to control it with. But those things invariably are never Bluetooth. They always have their own little dongle thing you got to plug in to a usb port 
I don't know why that is. Hmm. I think may- maybe it's because for certain OSs, that setup of having a little dongle that talks to your thing wirelessly, that will appear to just be a totally normal keyboard for the OS. I don't know if this is for Windows, it matters more. So like there's no drivers, there's no there's no configuration. You just plug it in and thinks, oh, there's a keyboard and a mouse. Fine, I can use that. Whereas, yeah, that if, whereas if it were Bluetooth, you you've got to pair it and you've got to do stuff. So that makes sense. Remember the PS2 port? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now that was reliable. Yeah, back in the olden days. Things were good and bad. Well, what should we talk about? You know, it occurred to me, I, I think that uh, in the time since I started at ThoughtBot almost three years ago, and you left ThoughtBot a year, year and a half ago, mm-hmm. like you and I have actually almost never talked. <laughs> yes, I was thinking about that going into this. Like it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. Just like, two people who know each other and have never really talked right. before trying to entertain people for thirty minutes to an hour. Right. Should be fine. I think it's going great. Yeah. Actually I I think most of the podcasts that I've ever done have been with people that I don't know and, and have never met for the most part. So it's fine. Oh. But but it's just interesting because you and I we I mean we met at one summer summit in san francisco a bit and that's really about it and we haven't really worked together on on projects much or anything when you were at thoughtbot so just sort of time zone difference nine hours apart that's the way it goes yeah although there was a time there where i was getting most of my work done between like midnight and 4 a.m my time which just happens to be mid-morning right (laughs) sweden but that's not sustainable no not for long so uh, what should we talk about? I know we had uh, a bit of a thought. There's been some discussion lately about the dynamic future or not of Swift and contrasting with the way Objective-C works and worked and what we can do in Swift today and what we what we cannot do and what should we be able to do. And I guess I've been working with this stuff for such a long time on the Objective-C side that I kind of take it as a given that that way of doing things is good and natural and at the same time i'm using swift all the time now and i'm like i'm not coding anything in objective c but i know that so much the stuff that the core frameworks we're using that are written in objective c rely on features that you probably could not do in swift today like kvo and like even if you're not using kvo directly all the time there's a good chance that that a lot of the apps you're using are using it, and like Apple, I'm you know I'm sure things like Xcode, I'm sure Apple's own apps are all full of KVO, and on the Mac, full of Cocoa Bindings, which is all on top of KVO, and th- and that would be very tricky, if not impossible, to implement in Swift as it stands today. And so those same features would need to be implemented in some other way, which I'm not saying is impossible. I just I haven't seen it. What languages did you code in before Objective C? Before Objective-C, Basic, Pascal, a tiny bit of assembly, tiny bit of C++. But like I started with Objective-C in 1994, so like pretty much fresh out of college. And so it was, you know the stuff we did in college was all, which is all fairly academic. Like there was Scheme and other var- variants of Lisp and stuff like that. But like the main workhorses that I got things done in were more C and Pascal. So. Objective C was my first real heavy use of object orientation at all. 
So I guess that was quite very much a, a formative thing for me. But I'm not I'm not so dogmatic that I think that that's the only thing that can work. I just feel like I haven't seen a lot of good counterexamples of rich GUI frameworks written with more static languages. Got it. And that was my next question was in those prior languages, were you writing applications that took a lot of different user input and were drawing things to a screen? So were you really missing the dynamism or did you not even really know what you were missing until you started writing Objective-C? Yeah, I think it's more that I didn't know what I was missing. And I think, I think I was just not writing things that were as complex up until through college. Most of what I worked on were things that were quite simplistic in a way, almost nothing that was a complete application that you could sort of give to someone and say, here you go, you can run this and use it. It's more like if you're university course level stuff, it's it's more, at least where I went to school, it tended to be sort of assignments, like write a program that does this, that kind of takes this input and does something with it and gives you this kind of right kind of output. Like it's not really a sort of a build an application that lets a user do these things. But like in the time since then, I have had some exposure to things like, like Swing and Java and... Uh, the uh, MFC stuff on Windows and all of those stuff, all those things seemed really, I don't know, not that efficient way of doing things. But then again, I'm sure now, I'm sure what you can do with uh, .NET and C Sharp for building a modern Windows application today is, of course, way beyond what you could have done with MFC or with, you know, Win32 APIs, that sort of thing. And that probably is close to the level of functionality that we expect from something like Coco. But like, I remember like, for example, 10 years ago, working on an application at a software company where I was working on the Mac port of their existing Windows application. And the Windows application, just for things like implementing undo functionality in the Windows app, it was so much work. There was so much code and it was so convoluted and so much crazy amount of visitor pattern and this is something that totally blew my mind because I had been I'd been doing Objective C for a while for for almost my whole career had not really done C plus plus much at all, and when they showed it to me like oh we we have this thing called the visitor pattern because da 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 and basically it's it's kind of a workaround for the fact that C plus plus has nothing like the equivalent of Objective C's categories or Swift's extensions. There's no way to add code of any kind to a class that already exists. So that's why the visitor pattern gets ends being used for a lot of things. You write code that is like, it takes an object of some kind and has a giant if-else construct. Say, if it's one of these, do this. Else, if it's one of these, do this. And so for each type you add to your system, you add one more thing to this if-else thing in your visitor managing thing. And that was so weird to me because I was so used to the, the nice thing of Objective-C that it could deal with having new stuff thrown into the mix without having to worry about it. And here was like this thing you had to explicitly state every single thing. And it just made it sort of very sort of fragile. So anything, anytime you wanted to add a new type somewhere, that would affect every visitor class and every sort of thing we'd have to sort of add for this new functionality for, oh, we have a new a new thing. We've got to add support for it everywhere because they could not be handled in a, in a general way. I'm not terribly familiar with, with the visitor pattern, but I think that you're saying that when you want to add new functionality, you might add a you might create a new visitor type and whatever the visited object is then would need to grow the ability to check that type at runtime and do something with it. Or am I getting that backwards? 
It's kind of the, the other way around. So you would have, and I, I haven't really used this either in about 10 years, but like the way that I recall it is you would have one big function that would check the type of what, what, what the visited object was. And depending on what the type was, it would call some method somewhere else, a specific method for that type, for the class you were looking at. And it's partly because, partly because you can't extend things and also partly because in C++, all the types are nailed down. So say you have a type that is called collection and that might have subtypes that are called array and dictionary and whatever. But in your code, you're just dealing with it as a collection. And you say, okay, I want to call the sort method on this collection. Well, that sort method that it's called will always resolve to calling sort on collection, not on the actual subclass itself. So if your, your array overrides sort or your dictionary overrides sort, that method is never called if your code is dealing with the type as a collection. You have to take your object, recast it into the actual type it is. First examine the type it is, say, oh, this is actually an array. So I'm gonna recast this into an array and then I'm gonna call that array's sort method because all those types are totally nailed down at compile time. So there's no way at, at runtime this thing can say, okay, I'm just gonna call sort on this thing, whatever it is. I know it's a collection of some kind. I'll use whatever is the appropriate thing. And this got me so infuriated. I remember I actually wrote, I wrote a really angry blog post about this when I realized how stupid C++ was. And I tried every other object-oriented language that I could think of and tried to see, okay, could I find one other OO language that worked this way? And I could not. I suspected that maybe Java would work the same way, but did not. So every, every, other, every other OO language, if you have a subtype and you call a method that's defined in the supertype, but the subtype overrides that, the overridden method is the one that is called. But C++ does not do it that way. And it's all in the name of performance, basically. Well, performance and safety, I guess. That makes it sound like C++ does not have dynamic dispatch, right? Correct. Unless, you, and the only way you can have dynamic dispatch is if you, if you make all of your functions and or classes virtual, which is a key word in there. And if you do that, then it kind of works the way you would think OO is supposed to work. But my experience is that C++ programmers hate to do that because they're terrified of the performance implications of doing that. And maybe it is a lot worse doing that. But I don't know. I mean, my thinking is that, okay, doing that is probably about like using typical Objective-C message sending, mm -hmm. which is not that bad. But maybe in C++, it is that bad. Or maybe they're just used to the performance characteristics of being able to call a function. And that is very tiny compared to doing a lookup. So like by and large, people who are writing big C++ code bases that I've seen do not use virtual a lot. They try and skip it as much as possible. And instead do things like saying, well, we'll, we'll use the visitor pattern instead. We'll have this big function that checks all the types of this thing and recasts and calls the right thing. Now, is that unperformant because it's C at the end of the day? I guess I'm wondering what, how C++ could like. Unperformant just because it's because it has to look at examine the type and see what it is and find the method. The same way Objective C does and, and and Swift does when it's being dynamic. Got it. But again, at, at that point, I'd already been developing apps in Objective C for over ten years, you know, with everything dynamic and like the performance of sending messages. I never experienced that being a problem. Like the, the performance problems were always memory swapping the disk too much because we had too little RAM back in the olden days. Or like, you know, you're waiting for a network, you're waiting for a database. 
like that you're sending a message in response to a user having clicked something and you have a bunch of objects messaging each other that in general was not a big problem much of the time i'm sure it makes a huge difference if you're writing a 3d game engine that's got to render a ton of stuff for every frame that, that's a different story but like for a typical gui application where the only things happening are in response to the user clicking something or dragging something a lot of that sort of thing is just sort of well okay this thing ends up taking 50 milliseconds instead of one millisecond like no one's ever going to know mm-hmm. so you mentioned before the undo example and saying that it just required so much code because it was lacking some feature that objective c has it, do you think that's a failing of the language or just bad api design not really sure probably a bit of both i think that uh and again i don't remember the details i guess because i've tried to block it out of my mind but like the the way it works in os 10 and ios even though it's not as not as critical in ios often but the way it works there is is quite simple you can use sort of say okay here's a chunk of work that i'm going to say is a unit of a unit of stuff and to undo it here is what you would do you would call this method or something and that sort of thing of being able to sort of treat a method as kind of a first-class citizen in C++ is very much not a thing. Because the way undo is, it's, undo works kind of similar to, you can compare it to, say, target action, right? Where you're saying, okay, target action is I'm going to have something that I point at some object, and I'm going to specify a method that I'm calling on that object. And un- the undo stack in OS X is kind of similar, where you say, okay, here's the thing that happens and it's going in the undo stack and to undo it you would call this method instead and so the undo stack is just kind of a list of a list of targets and a list of methods you would call on those targets to to undo that last action sort of and in c plus plus that is just totally not a thing so instead they had to i don't remember the details but for every action that could be undoable they would have to i think they would define probably ended up defining a class for every one of those things. There's like anything that could be undoable, whether it's typing a character, deleting a character, accessing some menu functionality, moving something, doing whatever. Like each of those things became, I think it became a class and a class conforming to a certain, a certain interface of some kind or rather inheriting from a certain abstract interface of some kind. And Again, it, it just blew my mind. Just the amount of code they had to do something that was so so very, very simple to do on Mac OS X. And what they were doing in Windows with MFC was was just a nightmare. And again, probably it's a lot better in .NET. If you're writing a Windows desktop app today using .NET, it's probably way better than the MFC stuff was. I just never, never delved into that. In that specific example, I, I'm not hearing anything that Swift is missing that would make that difficult between having dynamic dispatch under the hood hmm. and having protocol extensions and being able to pass methods and closures as first class objects. Right. It seems like Apple could pull that off. It might be messy inside hmm. of the framework, but as far as we are concerned, it would work just as well, maybe better. Yeah, and I, th- I think that is true. I think uh especially because if they want, if there is anything that is super hairy to do, they can do it in objective C. As long as we have a reasonable API to call it from Swift, we won't, it won't even matter to us. But I think where the problems lie are more in the area of, if you look at something like KVO today, you can only do that for things that meet certain requirements, right? Like it has to be a class that, that subclasses from an NS object, that sort of thing. And for some things, that's fine. And for some things, people really dislike that. 
It would be cool in a way if I could observe a property on a struct. But at the same time, what does that mean? Because a struct is always copied around. It's not passed by reference. So if I have a struct in one place and I'm observing a change to it somewhere else, by the time the other thing would be observing that change, it's not actually even looking at the same struct anyway. It's always looking at a copy of it typically as soon as it's been if it's ever been changed at all. So it's I think there's some complications there that just make it kind of difficult. But yeah, I at the end of the day, I think that I trust that Apple's team working on this is pragmatic enough and sufficiently solutions oriented that it's not going to be a problem. Like I don't think that they're actually going to throw away necessary useful functionality for the sake of purity. Say okay, at some point, will they replace AppKit and UIKit with something else? Sure, probably. But I think that what they replace it with will probably be something that is better, that doesn't eliminate a lot of the things that we already rely on without replacing them with something that is even easier to use and better to use. But I think it's sort of a nervous situation right now where it's hard to sort of see where the future is going with some of these things. Yeah, I mean, you have to think that Apple you know, has built its entire company on top of Objective-C for the last 10, 15, 20 years, there's right. no way that those internal teams are going to want to give up this functionality. And there's no way that they've invested right. so heavily in Swift without an eye forward on eventually making that the new Objective-C. Objective-C becomes right. carbon. Right. <laughs> I think that's what rubs me the wrong way about the argument that like they need to stick with Objective-C and the dynamism forever is that you're discounting Apple too much. Mm. Yeah, and I think you definitely you have a point there. And some of the things where the dynamism comes into play, like KVO and target action and undo and the responder chain, I'm sure all those things could be solved in other ways too. But it's a thing where when the tool you have is the language of like Objective-C that has all this dynamism built in, like, okay, here's a nice solution for that problem. Okay, cool. But if you if you had a different tool that provided other things, there could be other ways of solving it that could be just as elegant and maybe even less tricky like compared to the way KVO is implemented where there ends up being a, actually a new subclass made of your own class that you never see that has new methods of defined on it. I mean, that's that's pretty deep metaprogramming thing going on that as a developer you're not even aware of. Like I'm only aware of it because Mike Ash has written about it on his blog. It's not a thing that if you know we don't see the source code, we don't see how it works. So it's not a thing that you're even aware of. Which, to Apple's credit, I mean, they've done it so well that you don't even have to worry about it typically. It, it pretty much just works as long as you implement your, your things the right way. But if you didn't have Objective-C and wanted to do the same thing, well, if you're a programmer, you should find some other way. So, like, if the requirement comes down, we've got to, you know, re-implement KVO in Swift, then the team's mission will be, okay, we'll figure out a way to do it. We'll figure out a way to, you know, provide the same API that does the same sort of thing and if the language that we're doing with does not give all we need, we will make it so. You know, Swift is their baby. They can do what they want with it. I do wonder if, if the plan is to keep Objective-C bridging around in some capacity to handle some of these issues, or if Objective-C bridging was always just a temporary migration strategy. Yeah, I think Objective-C bridging will stick around for the foreseeable future, but it may be that in the long run, it's used more in the opposite direction. You know, as more frameworks are written in Swift instead of Objective-C, that it will eventually become a thing where, okay, you're writing an app in Objective-C, you're talking to some frameworks that are in Swift, but there's a bridge, so it's fine. And then at some point after that, that's when the whole thing will have a chance of perhaps going away. 
it's conceivable that in the future they could rewrite all their frameworks in Swift. But it's kind of, that feels very, very far away. I don't know how many lines of code are in Foundation and AppKit and UIKit and all the, all the things together, but it's, it's not trivial. It's nothing that you would want to throw away just for the hell of it, just for the sake of saying, hey, we, you know, let's do some new language. I mean, we've rewritten code in Swift kind of for the hell of it because it feels nice. But that's when you're talking about, you know, maybe a few dozen classes. Right. I mean, relatively, that's like redecorating a room, whereas Apple's right. migration would be trying to rebuild the house without, you, without disrupting your room. Yeah. Or rebuild the city <laughs> without you even noticing it. Right. Yeah, we, we we rebuilt the city overnight. You, hopefully, you won't notice any changes. I've never worked through one of these transitions before. I I actually don't see how Apple could pull this off in any reasonable way. Go, you know, WWDC in five years and go, oh hey, there's a brand new UI kit and app kit, and you should start using it. Hmm. You can't just move off onto it. Sure, new apps would be fine, but how would existing apps possibly move to a brand new? foundational framework well that's i mean that's what they did in the early 2000s with carbon right so the old all the old mac apps before that like all the adobe apps and microsoft apps were built on older technologies using you know a lot of using power plant frameworks done in c plus plus and they said okay here's new stuff it's this new cocoa thing which is you know it was open step same thing i had been working with for a few years already but what they did was they made it so you could have sort of hooks into things. You can say, okay, well, here you can make an NS window, but this NS window can also give you the same sort of handle that you need for your carbon apps to be able to draw something to the window. So they gave you sort of an inroad to it. And then over time, they kind of, what they really did was pretty much all the frameworks that Cocoa or that carbon developers were relying on for things like drawing to the screen and dealing with QuickTime and all these kinds of things they pretty much replaced them one by one. And after they had a new good replacement, maybe a year, two, three years later, they would deprecate the old one. And then a year, two, three years after that, they would say, okay, now it's not just deprecated, it's actually going to be gone. This old this old QuickTime framework from macOS 9, that's actually going to be gone this year. And so they gave companies a lot of time to be able to transition into things into a phased way. Like there was already from the start, they're saying, okay, you can build a brand new app in Cocoa today. And companies did that, but then you still had, again, things like Microsoft and Adobe that had to have, they had to have time. And there were a lot of complaints. And actually, and before they did that, like when, they, when the first thing that happened after they bought Next, within about a year, they said, hey, we're gonna have a new version of Mac OS X and we're calling it Rhapsody right now. And it's gonna be built on OpenStep and that's it. Like there was no story for pre-existing Mac developers to take their apps to Rhapsody at all. And those developers, of course, just went nuts. Like, what are you crazy? You know, we've got, to, especially the big developers and Adobe or Microsoft cannot imagine rewriting their whole app in a new language, new frameworks and everything for what? Because, you know, at that point, Apple was kind of almost on the ropes. Like they were not selling a lot of Macs and there was not a lot of excitement around Apple, even with Steve Jobs having come back. People were still largely very skeptical. And so then after that, after the developers went nuts, sometime, I don't know how long later, a few months, a year, forget what we said, we have a new strategy now. Now the strategy is we're going to make this thing called Mac OS X, and it's going to have all the Cocoa stuff we talked about, and it's going to have all the old APIs you're used to, and this uh, compatibility mode, I forget what it was called. There was a thing where you could run, 
all your old apps as is in kind of a in a kind of an emulator or a simulator that lasted for a few years. But like so, so, that, so they had like this multi pronged approach. You could just, you, you could just launch old OS nine apps straight up, or if you were a developer, you could take them and port them to the Carbon APIs with a reasonable amount of work. And that would give you a platform for moving forward into the new stuff in the future. So I can, so I mean, I can imagine them doing that for sure again because they've done it before, and they did it over such a long span of time. Like, I'm not sure how long it was six, seven, eight years. So, from the time that this was announced to the time that there was no more way to write your old Carbon apps unless you unless you had recreated all the C++ stuff yourself, all those frameworks, it was a long span of time. So no one had to sort of, re- they didn't really throw anybody under the bus. Yeah, I guess another example is the Intel transition. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were shipping Rosetta with Mac OS X for over five years, hmm. right? I think it was right, yeah. 2009, 2010, the Snow Leopard release was the first one that they stopped shipping with Rosetta. But if you went to run an app that needed it, you could download it. Hmm. It would install what it needed to run it. And I think it was fully gone two years ago. Like everything had to finally be over onto Intel. Yeah, it could be. I don't remember. I've kind of wondered what a what a pure Swift UI kit would look like. Right. And I have to imagine it would be heavily protocol based. Yeah. And so I, I guess I, I could see that you know there's some new view controller protocol or hopefully many protocols that make up what we think of as view controller and you know something that goes both ways like you can call two ui view controller on it and get a ui view controller on it and present that if need be or ui view controller gets an extension to conform to this protocol so that you can use them sort of interchangeably right i don't know how feasible any of that is but yeah i'm curious too because i mean i i'm kind of assuming that that is going to happen at some point but i can't it's hard to sort of imagine like i hope they do it right i hope they you know take time and spend the time and effort to make it into something that the community will really be able to grasp and work with in an efficient way and hopefully avoid some of the problems we have with ui view controller which by the way i remember reading i think either reading or hearing on a podcast interviewed this guy i forget his name i think his name is evan the guy who went went on to be one of the founders of flipboard Yep. Yeah, he did then, the uh, the Stanford course as well. He was one one of the first instructors at the Stanford. Okay. Yeah, well, I, I remember hearing a thing where he when he was working at Apple on early UI kit, and you know he was building one of the apps out if it was Mail or whatever it was, and this is when there was no UI view controller class, and he and his team they're like, oh, we need to have this. Let's just build this, and so they just built that, and then from there it went into other apps. But there was never really a design process of saying you know what should ui view controller has look like what should its responsibilities be beyond what they needed for their team for that app which is fine and you know in the sense that it got the job done for what they needed to do and it's you know it has served us in some way for for many years for many many apps but there was not a big process from the start of saying let's you know let's make this thing right and let's you know make something that's going to apply to a lot of situations and be very flexible and still be be able to be small and dynamic or not dynamic in the sense but small and flexible and so it became something kind of else over time so it'd be interesting to see what what they could do given the time to approach it properly and like you say maybe do things in in a different way like i would love to see something that like i said protocol based and that basically uses composition more than inheritance where where applicable but i think it was you know it requires a lot of thought 
to get that right. And of course, Apple does have money and they do have smart people who can think. So I'm hopeful. I do kind of wonder what their roadmap is. I wonder if Swift was so secretive that the framework teams actually didn't know about it and weren't able to start putting it on their roadmap until it was close to public release, Hmm. or if they've had maybe just a little bit of awareness to start working on something. Because I'd have to imagine that a new version of UIKit that's compatible with what we have now would take so much longer to build than just UIKit Hmm. the first time around. Right. Yes, I mean, my guess would almost be that they would, what they would come up with would not be a new version of UIKit, but would be just a different framework entirely. But they would have some shared characteristics so that you could take a UI view, an existing UI view, and put it into your new framework, into you know, into an app built with a new framework and have it work in some way. Which, again, is similar to what they could do with Cocoa and Carbon. You could make a new app in Cocoa and pull in a view rendered by some Carbon functionality, and it could work. You know, you didn't have everything, but you at least had all, you had everything you had in the old framework, certainly, and you have to do some new things to make it work right with Cocoa in some ways, maybe. But that's kind of what I envision is that was rather than trying to extend UI kit into something new, they would actually make a new framework, perhaps even go the route of trying to unify things and make a new GUI framework that is essentially the same on Mac OS and on iOS. Yeah, that would be ideal. I'm not sure I, I see those OSs coming together. So I, Right. I think that would still be a lot more work. Do you remember hearing about UX kit? Yeah. About a year ago. People got really excited about that. I, I think at the end of the day, that just ended up being a, um, like chameleon. Mm. Remember Icon Factory's chameleon wrapper? They, they kind of wrapped up app kit and right. API compatible yeah. wrappers. I think it was just a thing that they, they said, Hey, let's do this so we can write a few apps in this certain way. I mean, they've always had internal private frameworks in their apps basically the same way that we that we would do if we have a team that wants to make something we say hey if we do this we think we can do this and it'll make us be able to implement this faster or better in a more uniform way and include it as an, as an embedded framework then sure we do that and i think they've always done the same thing so i thought it was interesting ux kit but i was not i was never thinking this is going to be the new framework for os10 of course, I could be proven wrong a month from, in a month from now, or not less than a month. Was it two weeks? Very, very soon. Very yeah, soon. two, a little less than less than two weeks. Yeah, two weeks from Monday, I think. Two weeks from Monday. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, AppKit has been approaching UIKit's paradigm slowly. I mean, NS View Controller is now pretty important. Right. View-based table views. I think I heard they've deprecated NS Cell. Let's hope so. <laughs> I don't think I've heard that, but it'd be good. I just heard that from someone. Yeah, it's one of those things that has very much outlived its usefulness. And it was also maybe a case of premature optimization. You know, it's a thing where dividing things into a view and a cell because we think that a view is too heavy and so we want to have, we want to have a very lightweight thing, which turned out to not be that useful, you know, already within a few years after they came up with it. Within 10 years after they came up with it, for sure, it was already kind of, sure, it saves us a few CPU cycles, but at great expensive programmer time to make things work yeah i guess the closest thing in ui kit would be ui bar button item yeah it's sort of ns cell ish and my understanding there was that they did want to make it ui view based but the human interface team only wanted ui bar button items to be used in very specific ways in toolbars and navigation bars mm-hmm. which is why they sort of crippled 
the interface of it to not just be a view, even though there is a bar button item view right under the hood. So was that the UI team, because of those specific things, one of those specific things to not be customizable and not be extensible in certain ways and therefore do this sort of weird... Yeah, my, my understanding is that they didn't want them using bar buttons just in your UI. Okay. Because they had that ornamentation before they were specifically for bars. Right. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I certainly appreciate their like measured approach to API design. I kind of can't imagine if they had just thrown open the doors on UI kit and said, you can kind of do whatever you want and have all the customization that you do on OS 10. Right. I'm not sure we'd have as good of apps now or as we did when the platform launched. Yeah. I think the uniformity of typical iOS apps in terms of a lot of how they look is, is helpful to the platform in ways that people don't always acknowledge. Like I know we, we've had situations where we have, well, I think I guess I've had throughout my, throughout the time of when working with iOS that I have clients or employers who want to do kinds of customizations that are just like way off the mark in terms of what Apple is usually talking about. And you kind of have to talk people down and, and explain that there are conventions for a reason. It's so that you don't, you don't want to surprise your users. You want them to know how this thing's going to work by looking at it. And, you know, don't spend too much time focusing on weird side details of customizing things that don't need to be customized. Yeah. And also at the time, I mean, it was the first touch interface that wasn't completely infuriating to use. And it was a mass market product. And you had to, I mean, you were literally teaching people how to use software without a mouse. Right. And so enforcing that uniformity across the apps, I think, was probably their number one goal for that reason. Sure. Yeah, I mean, if every app had been had been different, if every app would have its own user interface, like Windows 95 or whatever, Windows 3.1 even, just like where anything, you know, you know, no holds barred, just do whatever you want, people would not have taken to the product in the same way. Definitely true. All right, well, what else? Have you been uh, attending any uh, interesting meetings or conferences or anything like that lately? No, I haven't had much interest in... It sounds bad, but engaging with the community as of late, no. especially like on Twitter, I'm I'm pulling back. Yeah, why is that? I find that people complain a lot, and it makes me grumpier than I than I should be when I'm scrolling through my uh, Twitter feed. Yeah. That's not that, that's not what Twitter's for. Yeah, there's Twitter's for it's for dank memes <laughs> and baseball news. Are you part of baseball Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> oh, definitely. Oh, I I think I actually follow more baseball related accounts now than I do iOS developers. Interesting. That's cool. I'm definitely less plugged in than I used mm. to be, but I'm not sure that's a problem. No. I, I used to be mostly interested in UIKit, mm -hmm. and I still consider myself to have a lot of UIKit knowledge, but now I'm just, I'm all in on Swift. Yeah. yeah, I think I follow more random weirdos on Twitter than I follow iOS developers, but I follow a lot of a lot of iOS developers too. What kind of weirdos? Oh, just like, you know, strange musicians and authors and performance artists and jugglers i don't know there are all sorts of there's so many interesting people in the world that you can that you can follow and stuff which is good i bet there's a pretty large mime community on twitter <laughs> and they have to express themselves somehow <laughs> and they, yeah they probably just post photos they don't because no, they don't they want to be wordless you speak, right you can type right can our mimes allowed to type maybe i don't know i'm th i always just assume that they're that they're mute they can't speak but they could write i'm thinking they're posting a lot of gifs of like you know doing hand things and <laughs> hmm. but i feel like that's what they do all day they want to yeah they want to cut loose you don't want to bring your work home 
when your work is being trapped inside of an invisible box or pulling on an invisible rope. <laughs> it's called a work-life balance, <laughs> right. Jack. They got to they gotta put some words out there somewhere. This gives me some new inspiration of a whole new group of people trying to follow on Twitter. I'm going to find some mimes. <laughs> if I find any, I'll put them in the show notes. Good. Big mimes. Cool. Yeah. Well, should we uh, wrap this up? Yeah. I think this was a good first Mark and Jack yeah, show. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Show notes for this episode will be available at buildphase.fm slash 94. And as always, we'd like to hear from you. So reach out to us on Twitter at buildphase or email us at hosts at buildphase.fm. And as always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are greatly, greatly appreciated. 